Well, the most important people are here, I think. Let me see. I have to make an apology first. I noticed I was the, first, the only speaker that had no PowerPoint presentation. Because in Holland, you know, the people don't need this. <laughs> but because you apparently do need it, with the help of uh, Lauren Tumming, I put something together. I'm not sure whether I'm good at it, but uh, I, I accept my sincere apologies. You're speaking for all of them? Good, 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 good. Oh, Clancy is there. We can start. <laughs> oh, and Kenan is coming. And Eden is coming. <laughs> oh, okay. And Devora is defending the hind rear. Okay. Sphere sovereignty. What is it? Well, for the f already many times, the name of Abraham Kuyper. As we say in Dutch, Abraham Kuyper was mentioned. And uh, I'm very happy with the man, not because he was Dutch, <laughs> but he really had a tremendous influence. Without Kuyper, you could hardly imagine Doyewerd, and without Doyewerd, you could hardly imagine the Runner Academy. We might have all been doing nice, funny things, but you know we would not have been here. As you have heard, he was, he was, he, um, I don't know, I understand why, why there, where this man found his time. He founded a newspaper in which he wrote every day. He founded the university, the Free University of Amsterdam. He founded the political party, the anti-revolutionary party, which is still part of the Christian Democrats, who are still in the government of our country. So it's a lasting influence. And besides this, he wrote many, 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 many books. Those criticizing Kuiper sometimes cannot even write, read Dutch, and the majority of what he wrote was never translated into, into English. So what are they talking about? His book, Pro Regi, For the King, is now being translated. It's a three-volume work, I think it's 1,700 pages, something like that. It's a little bit wordy, I must admit. A little bit wordy, but it's, it's great. It's great. Of course, we're 100 years further, and we have done, done some thinking. But he developed this term, sphere sovereignty. In Dutch, souvereiniteit in eigen kring. That means within the, uh, every sphere is sovereign within its own Boundaries, although at the same time, of course, it is uh, it's, sovereign, it's always under the sovereignty of God. I'll come back to that later. Kuiper developed this idea. I just told Joe, I was at an American conference once in biology, and the Americans would shout, Next slide, please. <laughs> Here comes this fellow from Oxford. I wonder if I could have the next slide, please. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, Every law sphere is autonomous with respect to the others and subject to God's word and Christ's kingship. So autonomous is, and sovereign is a little bit dangerous term. Only autonomous in the sense that it is ruled by its own laws, but these laws have been instituted by God. So they are autonomous with respect to each other, but they're all under the kingship of Christ. 
For Kuiper, the term was important to distinguish church and state. As you will see, I wonder if I could have the next slide, please. Uh, because this was why he developed the whole idea, because he was basically a theologian, he was not a philosopher. But he also became uh, a prime minister in the beginning of the 20th century. Amazing what this guy achieved. And he even had time to, uh, to beget nine children, I think, if I'm not uh, somewhere in between. He raised a big family. Amazing man. I wonder sometimes what kind of wives those men had. They must have been very submissive in those days. Not the type of ladies that we have here nowadays anymore. And that's very different. <laughs> I told you last week, some, some things that I will tell you are repetitions of what we had at last week's. Last week. In the Middle Ages, the church ruled over the state. Now, when you get to think about that, that's not a stupid idea. The church is in a direct connection with God. The state is inferior to that. It's secondary. They are uh, laymen. And the church, there are the churchmen, the clergymen. So there's, it's not totally nonsensical that the church rules over the state. But then we had in early Protestantism the state ruling the church. And as I told you, our most famous Dutch Bible, uh, Bible translation was the state's translation because it was not the church, but the authorities, government, who decided to have this translation made, just like the King James Version in England. It was King James. There again, you might say, well, of course, the state are the authorities. We should all be under the authorities, Romans 13. So it's logical that uh, the church is also under the authority of the state. Actually, that is what Kuiper said. Both are wrong. And then we get, in modern time, the neutral state. That's even worse. Because now God is totally outside the pictures. Those arguments do not work anymore. And this is one point. I might be a little bit repetitive because others have said the same thing and I've said it last week, but it's so important. We would like to hammer this down on you. Uh, this important fact that you might say church and state are apart. We teach a separation between the two, but that is not a separation of religion versus secularism. Because everything we say and that we do is religious. We are not only religious when we pray and sing and read the Bible. S uh, buying a car is a religious act. If you don't understand this, then you have missed everything those two weeks. Buying a car is something that you do together with the Lord. And I'm not joking. This is true. Well, uh, acquiring a wife, that might be more obvious, but basically it's the same thing. Everything that we do is religious in the sense that we do it as obedient to the Lord, in communion with him, asking for his will. And uh, if you don't do that, you're simply wrong. So there's also wrong religion. Independence uh, from God, of God. There is wrong, there is idolatrous religion, there is true religion, and there is false religion. But we're always religious. So the state is never neutral, the state is not under the church, and the state is not ruling over the church. 
This is what Kuiper said. Both spheres are autonomous with respect to each other. Now, we have to find out more clearly than it has been done so far what exactly this means. Uh, I wonder, yeah, here it is. Straight room. I wonder if I could have the next slide, please. Yeah, this is also an important thing that I would like to hammer down once more. Because whether it is the church or the state or the marriage or the family or the school or your company, whatever, these are structures. But in all those structures, it's either God word or Satan word. I will do this instead of repeating this Oxford sentence. Is that okay? Uh, Like in the Psalms, before they call, I will answer them. That's great. So, last week I distinguished eight of them, but that is arbitrary number because it's not easy. Nevertheless, it's not easy to think of a few others. Four of them, the four of them have been instituted by God. I don't think that I should have to underscore this. The church... Well, I have to come back to that. What is actually the church? There are seven meanings of the word. But for the time being, this is enough. The state, marriage, and the family. And I repeat, each one of them can be dedicated to the Lord and can also be dedicated to the flesh. Also the church? Yes. The church has all too often been abused to serve the flesh. And uh, the other side of four are structures that develop in historical development, that are products of historical development. And these are schools, companies, associations, including clubs, uh, unions, whatever, political parties. I'm sure some of you will find a ninth one because I don't care about the number. Uh, This will give you the ideas, and certainly schools, and companions are very good examples of what I want to say. They're never neutral. When we do business, it's all for the honor of the Lord, or it is for our own benefit. It's only to make money, to get profit, or it is for the honor of the Lord. And that holds for all our associations, holds for all the schools. So now you see how important it is. Sphere sovereignty means... The school is autonomous, with a certain limitation to which I will come back. The school is autonomous. That is, it has its own God-given structure, as it came to develop in the development in history. It has its uh, own structural laws given by God. It is responsible to God or to the idols, whatever idols you may serve. That's always religious, because simply everything that we do is religious. It holds for all four of them. Now, they are autonomous with respect to each other. Or, well, yeah, okay. This is, uh, this is okay. All eight structures, or nine or ten, whatever you may find more, are destined to be holy. That's important. Not only the church is holy. As we saw last week, not only theology is sacred. Chemistry is just as sacred, at least it is supposed to be, because everything that we do should be sacred, that is dedicated to the Lord. All stand in principle under the Lordship of Christ. In principle, because it might also be used 
to serve the demons, to serve Satan, to serve our own flesh, to serve the will of man. All need the working of the Holy Spirit. I always am a little irritated if somebody says, I have no calling to become a pastor, so I became a businessman. Because I immediately will ask, so do you have a calling to be a businessman? How did the Lord show this to you? How did he reveal this to you? That's what I said last week. Scholasticism is deep in our hearts. As soon as you reserve terms like calling to uh, the calling for uh, to be a clergyman, clergywoman, you're misunderstanding this whole thing. If I wouldn't know that I'm called to do this type of work, then I would serve myself. I would follow my own will. We are called, each one of us, according to the talents that we have received. But that's not even enough. I think I was a fairly talented biologist, but I didn't stay there. Because the Lord, I think, led me on to a new oasis in the wilderness. This is a wonderful chapter in Numbers Numbers 11, where every time that the cloud ascends, people have to realize, have to pack very quickly and follow the cloud wherever it goes. The whole church history is full of people who say, this is the oasis that the Lord has given to us. Calvin, that's our man, 500 years ago, and we're not going to change from that, because the Lord has pointed, yeah, okay, that's what he did 500 years ago. Or whatever is the big man in your denomination. You have to move on. I belong to a denomination that was uh, developed in the 19th century. And we thought, this is it, you know, we are living in the last days, but, you know, God is giving us this. And then in 1906 in the Netherlands, the Pentecostal revival broke out a few years earlier in, in Los Angeles. And we were irritated. We thought we were the right oasis to which God has led us in these last days. And now God is doing a new revival, apart from us. This is a big problem. We're under the working of the Holy Spirit. The cloud then is the Holy Spirit now. So in those, in those structures, there's always development, but within a certain boundaries, recognizing the principles of those structures as God has given them. We are under the Lordship of Christ, and by His Holy Spirit, He's leading us on. He's leading us on step by step, in our uh, personal lives and also in those various structures as I've shown you. What is on the next slide, uh, Lauren? Oh, this is nice. This is all her work, her doing. The state, the state. Yesterday we heard, actually we have heard it several times, that the state is a thing that always has a tendency to encompass all the others. And that seems so natural, you know. We have our families, we have our churches, and we have our companies, our schools. And above all that is the state. There's some th- logic in it. And still, it's totally wrong. And I can't imagine any man who has shown this more, cle- so more clearly than Abraham Kuyper. And those who followed him, Doeweer, Vollenhoven, and the others. Because this idea is wrong. The task of the state is only this. (laughs) My miracles do not always take place that. You just have to call them. I have to call them? You just have to call them. Sean, it's not written. What's next? Uh, You see, I'm not used to this crazy thing. (laughs) 
In Holland, we don't need this. Okay. <laughs> well, this is a key word that you should not forget. And I think it has not been mentioned yet. The only task that the church has is to maintain public justice. Say after me, public justice. Public justice. What does it mean? It means only the justice as far as it concerns public life. Now, let me give you a number of examples for those various societal structures that we mentioned. For marriage, for instance, the state should never decide, well, no state does actually, what women, what woman we should marry or what husband we should marry. Although in Nazi Germany, there was a little tendency to do that, you know, to have a breed, a better generation. Uh, that, that is free. We must make our own decision. And what happens in the bedroom, the state does not interfere either. Except, when you rape your own wife, when you mistreat her, then the state comes in. Because then, that is a matter of public justice. That is a matter of uh, mistreating, almost killing, etc. So you might not say, oh, well, you don't have nothing to, nothing to do with my uh, marriage because I treat my wife as I like. That's not of your business. Marriage is autonomous. That's what Albert Kuyper said. No, but Kuyper would also say, hey, public justice commands that there the state should interfere. You can call the police when that happens. The same with the family. We can still raise, in most of our countries, the children as we think best. Thank God for that. How many children you're going to have, the state doesn't determine that for us, although there might come a time that they will say, we can only have one and a half children. That will be quite complicated, of course, to have one and a half child, but somewhere in the state will tell us how to do that. That's what they had in China, of course, for a long time. I've been to China, and I saw those families with one child. This child should have all the perfections that you would, in our usual families, find among all the six children there, you know. Some are perfect in this and perfect in others. Here, everything should be perfect in this one child. It's totally spoiled. It's ruined. I've seen it. It's terrible. What an idea. No, the state should not interfere with that. We, it leaves it to our own wisdom. I heard in Holland Rouse, Someone had 24 children in the pastor thought that perhaps he should consider the possibility that his family was now complete. But he said, the pastor, the Bible is very clear about we should fill the earth. Yes, said the pastor, but you don't have to do this all on your own. We'll help. So 24 is quite enough. Um, no, the state doesn't interfere. But when I mistreat my children, not when I'm teaching doctrines that the state might not be interested in, but when I mistreat them, when I, I beat them up, then the state might come in, and rightly so, because then public justice is at stake. So the state has no right to interfere in any of the others, just like the family has no right to interfere, in, but that is logical for most people, to interfere with the state or to intervene there. But it works always, in all directions. So let me give another example. Church. Whatever the state may say about the equality of men and women, it has no right to tell us whether we should allow women into office, yes or no. It leaves that to us. Actually, it's not involved in anything that happens in the churches. Unless... 
Public justice is at stake. If we decide to have, I think I used this example last week, if we decide to have meetings at 6 o'clock in the morning and the whole neighborhood is woken up by our loud singing, then the state says, hey, wait a second. Well, and also the place where we would like to have a church building, the state comes in there. Because these are matters of public justice. They have to do with public life generally. We should take into account the interests and, uh, uh, of others. So that is its only task. And by, at a number of occasions, I thought yesterday when I heard all those examples where in Canada the state is interfering, I thought it's no right. They only should be occupied with public justice. And anything that goes further than that is the beginning of the totalitarian state. Now, um, how far can the state meddle in the lives of individual people? Well, when morality is involved. You're not supposed to kill anyone. So you have not a right to do anything. And what's I like the example yesterday that we had about freedom of speech. That was a beautiful example. Uh, we had it at one of our, I think it was the Queen's birthday, and there was a whole, well, all kinds of festivities in Amsterdam, and suddenly somebody cried something that made all the other people think that there was a terrorist attack going on. And this man was, uh, was punished for that, for a good reason. Not because he had not the freedom of speech, because public justice was involved. He did something that was against public justice, that interfered with the rights and the protection of other people. Now, I could come to a very important question. What about abortion? Lots of people in North America and also in Europe are not so much for abortion. They're far too smart to say that. They are pro-choice. You've heard them. They're not pro-life, they're pro-choice. They say this. Arnell is right. Well, they don't say that, but that's the way I interpret it now. Arnell is right. We only have to do with public justice. So we do not interfere with the rights of individual people. So if an individual, a lady, is pregnant and this doesn't fit her for some reason or another, it's her post-personal freedom. It's her choice to do this. Now, what is the ground that the state does interfere there? And this is something so obvious that it's very difficult to understand why people could think differently. I'm not sure. In certain countries, like in Holland, for instance, you can do abortion only up to 24 weeks, which is still quite critical. If a child is born at 24 weeks and the parents want to have that child, the, med the medical people will do all they can to save the life of their child. And sometimes they succeed. That's fantastic. But if you have a baby of the same age in your womb and you would like to get rid of it, there's no problem. You can do that. But at other places, is it like this in Canada? You can have abortion up till the very last moment. This is absolutely crazy. We're living in a society where this child, as soon as it is born, it's protection of all kinds. Um, and just before it was born, you can still kill it. Now, what is the rationale behind this? How can you defend such a thing? And yesterday we heard the argument, well, the baby has no say in these things. It's only a matter for the woman, because what can a baby say anyway? 
Well, that means you can still uh, kill children of three years of old age because what would they have? What kind of opinion can they bring in? Nothing. Before a child begins to speak, well, what do we know about psychologists to tell us? What, what do we know about their psychological functioning? It takes such a long time before we really see human features coming out. Would that entitle us to kill such children? No. No. The only ex exception that we heard yesterday, the exception was taken from the Netherlands uh, laws, and uh, I looked it up and it was correct as it was presented. When a child is born with great handicaps, man mentally or physically, and is apparently suffering very, very much, and there is no way to uh, how to handle this, how to improve the, the destiny of this child, then with all precautions and so on, it's only doctors who can do this, and they have to be very strict in following all the conditions, the child can be killed. That is a bad thing. It's also, the alternative also is very, very bad, of course. There are such moments in life that you have to choose between the two evils. I'm not defending that Dutch law because I abhor of it, but I also abhor of the life that such a child has to face. But okay, that is what it is. But to kill unborn children because they are still unborn lacks any type of logic. So here's not just a question of public justice. If we are not allowed to kill each other, we are not allowed to kill those who who cannot even defend themselves, the unborn child. So there the state can come in and say this is public justice. According to the biblical principle, thou shalt not kill. What about gay marriages? That's even more complicated. What right does the, church, the, the state have to say, well, if you're two men or two women, you cannot marry? Well, in the first place, marriage has been monopolized by the state. And that's not a bad thing. We've had this since Napoleon in the Netherlands. So before that time, you were married in church only. The state had nothing to do with it, unless you were so such a pagan that you didn't want to go to church and you could go to the local authorities and have it arranged. But these were except, uh, exceptions. So the state has monopolized marriage anyway. What ground can the state have to say now we take two men or two women who want to marry and uh, we should not be against that, it's their freedom. Again, although it might be less obvious than in the previous example, example, again, something very important at stake because what is marriage after all? Marriage was given by God in the first place to regulate procreation. That is the message of Genesis 1. If you only had Genesis 1, you would know the only difference between the men and women is to serve procreation. That's the goal of it. When you come to chapter 2 in Genesis, I just spoke about that in a wedding two weeks ago. When you come to chapter 2, there are no children there mentioned at all. It's the love between the two that matters. They complement each other. And that's the way God wanted it. But his first point... Procreation has to be regulated so that children know who is my dad and who is my mom. And that's the whole point in a gay marriage. A gay marriage 
is not an institute of procreation. They cannot procreate. So why call it a marriage? If the state thinks it has to do something about it and uh, make a contract between any two people who would uh, like to live together, and we have such contracts in the Netherlands, for instance, if the two want to inherit from each other, you know, because if they have no contract, they cannot inherit. All their possessions go to their close relatives. But if they have such a contract, then they can inherit, they can have together properties, etc., etc. Okay, the state can arrange that, but never call that marriage. That's a silly thing. And I make a prediction here. I might not live to see it happen, but you might. The prediction is this. One day, perhaps Holland might be the first again, one day we have two women and one man, or two men and one woman, and they say there's discrimination that only two people can marry. We want to be married, all three of us. Now, if you're living in a secular state, what can the state say against that? Why not? Why not have five people? Isn't that great? If, as soon as you're going to loosen the biblical concept of a marriage, which even makes sense to unbelieving people as a procreation institute, let me put it that way, then you can have everything. So I'm really waiting for this to happen, not because I want it, because I'm expecting this is going to be the next thing. It's discrimination, discrimination, if you only have two people that can marry. And that is the, the whole concept of marriage is loose. And so that's where public justice comes in. Public justice cannot does not mean that we decide over who can live together. There is no country that I know of, perhaps a Muslim country, where Sharia has been introduced, interestingly. But uh, generally, adultery is never forbidden by the state. Why is that? Because the Christian leaders of the state are for it? No, not at all. But they will say this is not a matter of public justice. This is not a matter of public justice. So it's outside their domain. They leave that to the people. It's to their own responsibility. But the state has a say when it comes to defining marriage. And therefore it should say, well, if you want to live together, we cannot stop that. That's not our task. That's our duty. The pastors might preach against it, but that's not our task. But please don't call that marriage. That is the stupid thing. And... I wonder again about the logic behind it, how sensible people can do such things. It's quite strange. Um, let's come to the state, to the church. It's very common to say the church teaches this or the church teaches that. That's a little bit strange. I'll show you why. At first, we must say that the church, that the word church, ecclesia in Greek, has at least seven different meanings. And I'm not even talking about the meaning of a church building. Oh, that's a nice church over there. It's not even included in the seven. I mean church in the sense of a group of people, of Christian people. Now, the first meaning is that it is the church as it exists in the councils of God from eternity. That is the transcendent meaning of church. The gathering of all the believers of all times. And one day that church will be complete. 
But secondly, practically, it's an imminent thing. The church is something that develops over time in history. Some of us believe that that started in Eden. Others will believe that this started in Acts 2. That's not our discussion right now. But a church as a thing that develops into his, in history, that is important. That's the imminent meaning of the term church. The third meaning is all believers at the same, living at the same moment on earth. First Corinthians 10 tells us that the Lord's Supper has this aspect, that many aspects, but this is one of them, as an expression of the unity of God's people on earth. Well, that means practically those who are alive. That, change, that church changes all the time. At the beginning of the sentence, it was a little bit different from what it is now, because some people have come to faith and others have died. So that church is changing all the time. But the church of God on earth is the whole, the totality of all true believers who are alive right now on earth. We are still not arrived at the meaning the church teaches, because none of these churches so far teaches whatsoever. Fourth, Paul writes to the church in Corinth. That's the local meaning of the church. It is the church as the gathering of all true believers within one and the same locality, village, town, city. That still is not a church that teaches. Because in practice, this church is divided over I don't know how many. In Holland, in my lifetime, I've seen 20 different Reformed denominations. Not talking about the 200 different evangelical denominations, but still. They can't work together because they are all divided up over their denominations. Let me say first, there's a fifth meaning. All believers meeting in one house. A few times we have such a reference in the New Testament, for instance, in Colossians, to such house churches. So even within a town, within a city, you might have a group of meeting at the same place. So then church means it's not just all the believers in Grimsby, it means all those who meet at one and the same place. That's a church that you see visibly when you go to church on a Sunday morning. Now we're pretty close to the sixth meaning. All believers of one denomination. Because these are the people that meet together. Perhaps it's partly my brethren background, I don't know, but when people say the church teaches this or that, I always smile or I cry, whatever the circumstances, because they always mean our denomination teaches. There's no such thing as the church that teaches, apart from the fact that I don't know of any occasion in the Bible where the church teaches, even in the time that there were not yet divisions. It's the teachers that teach. As one of the theological, but I'm not going into that, the theological difficulty with, difficulty with uh, making up creeds, etc. What authority do we have to do this and to impose them upon all the people in the denomination? Well, that is a different problem. I just mentioned it to be complete. Uh, all the believers of one denomination, that which to me is the church, that is my local denomination or the local church belonging to a wider denomination. That which in practice for me is the church. There where I go to on a Sunday morning. And then seventh, 
well, or that is already included now, my own local church. The church that is where I'm pastored, where they look after me. I'm traveling so much that one time the elders came to me and asked me solemnly whether I still considered me myself to be a member of that church. And I said, yes. And I said, I even am prepared to admit that I'm on the authority of the elders. Although all those elders are younger than I am, but it doesn't make any difference. I am, I am under their authority. So that's the practical meaning of belonging to a local church. But we have to remember nowadays that uh, this local church consists of many denominations. Since 13 months now, we live in the town of Houghton. We have at least six different reformed uh, churches there coming together and a few evangelical churches. You, and you will find out in 2K, two kingdom theology, this whole idea, you read it with David Van Drunen all the time, the church does this and the church does that. They can only mean our own local denomination does this and does that. There is no such thing as the church teaching nowadays. We are far too happy that most churches would basically agree on the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed, great. For the rest, we agree to disagree about almost everything. Is that a problem? No, not so much. I mean, it's a pity, but it's, as Abraham Kuyper already said, it also is part of the coloredness of the church. We are very different. I come in very many denominations. And I always like, because they're different from the church where I was last week. You see, in 10 days, I hope to preach in an evangelical church where they have 5,000 members divided over three church meetings, a little bit fatiguing. A week later, I preach in the Protestant Church of the Netherlands, which is the old Dutch Reformed Church. And I love it. I love it. But sometimes I say, oh, I'm glad I don't go to this church every Sunday. That's true, too. We love the distinction. But don't say the church teaches. The church is far too divided to teach anything. But in two kingdom arguments, this is very important. Because the sacred sphere consists of the church, which in practice means their own denomination. And the church does this and the church decides that. No, it doesn't. To me, the church is my own local church. Well, I preach there six times a year, so at least I try to be there six times a year on a Sunday morning. And I love them, and I never consider even going away from that church. That is my church. My wife goes there every day because she's the mother of that church. Don't tell her, but that's actually what she is. So she never comes with me, almost never, and she goes to that church. And that's fine. That's the way it should be. That's the way it should be. But our church doesn't teach anything. Okay. What do we hear about the... So what I'm saying also, let me put it this way. What has, does this have to do with sphere sovereignty? There is a sphere called the church. But we should be very careful to speak about it because that word has deteriorated. It has so many different meanings that it's not easy to see where this church is. For instance, let me put it this way. There's a distinction between the, my church and the individual responsibilities of its members. The church is not simply the addition of all the individual members. 
Some of the individual members might be called to start a publishing house. The church has nothing to do with that. Some might be, uh, be called to join a political party. The church has nothing to do with that, unless it is an anti-Christian party, of course, but then such a person would leave the church by himself. So we have all kinds of responsibilities. As long as we are not obliged anymore, like in 2K theology, to have this whole sacred sphere defined as the church, we can be much freer about using that term. The church is the church that I go to on Sunday. And on Monday, I'm a school teacher, or I am, I don't know what. That has nothing to do with the church. It has to do with my individual responsibility as a father, as a husband, as a school teacher, as a preacher, and you name it. So sphere sovereignty also means that I'm not only part of the sphere of the church, as 2K would teach. I'm a member of many different spheres. And in each one of them, I have my own different responsibilities. And if my elders would come to me and they would say, well, we don't like those philosophical books that you write, I said, well, I am not going to oblige you to like them. But what are I going to do about it? Well, we thought you should retract them. Well, they know I would never do that, so they won't come up and tell me that. What does this principle mean? The state has to do with public justice. Not more than that. But in the church, it's a little bit similar. The church cannot go any further. It cannot mingle, meddle in my other responsibilities. If I think I'm a bad father, they may show that from the scriptures. But for the rest, they cannot tell me what fatherhood is. That is one of the difficulties of two-kingdom theology because the church here now is the encompassing concept for all these things. No. I'm not responsible to my church for being a school teacher or a writer of books, even when it comes to theology, etc., etc., etc. I would like you to have at the end of this seminar a very clear concept of what the church is, and especially what it is for your personal life, and secondly, what the state is, especially when you live in a country like Holland or Canada or America or whatever. Be clear about that. So we talk about church and state. A few remarks. Oh, well, I still have a few things here, but most of them are... You see, this is why I hate PowerPoint presentations. I will tell you right away. You see, now I'm stuck to this scheme, to this diagram that Lauren made so nicely. I cannot move freely to some other subject that comes up in my heart. If I feel led by the Spirit then I'm to be led by thumbing. <laughs> it's my choice. Sorry, it was my mistake. So now I'm always mixed up. You know, I will never do this again, uh, Joe. I tried it once with PowerPoint presentation. <laughs> okay. What do you think about... Now, actually, I'm a schoolmaster. I would like to hear your answers. What do you think about the, the, the sentence, church and world? How do they relate? Instead of uh, me answering questions, I'm going to ask them some questions, uh, Susie. Do you agree with that? Even if you didn't, I would do it. <laughs> what do you think of that? Church and world. Kenan. Um, my dad always talked about 
church is the powerhouse of the kingdom, so I think of kind of it relates to the world in that Christians gather on Sunday and then from there pour out to the world. So you like the sentence? Church and the world? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I, I draw a conclusion that you seem to like it. Yeah. I'm so sorry, Kenneth. We were so good friends up till today. <laughs> they are confusing of two categories. You should have said, well, uh, Dr. Willem, church is belonging to one of those structures. World belongs to the vertical dimension. So it's nonsense to put them together like this. The world reveals itself also within your church. I don't know your church, but it reveals itself everywhere, like the flesh. You also say the church and the flesh. Well, the flesh reveals itself also in church. Every church's vision is a result of the flesh working. It's very difficult to mention a church's vision that was 100% warranted by Scripture. It's usually a clash of personalities. It's the flesh. So church and world is a confusing of two categories. Church has to do with the horizontal dimension world with a vertical dimension. Same with church and society. These are all scholastic concepts that have been hailed again in two-kingdom theology. It's like church and society. It's a similar uh, confusion because the church, at any rate, my denomination, my local church, are also part of society. It belongs to the many responsibilities that I have as a father, as a husband, as a church um, member as a school teacher, as a preacher, etc., etc., etc. Church and state, that's a good comparison. But then I would say to Abraham Kuyper, let us extend it to many uh, other uh, spheres as well. And that is what Doiwit, of course, later did. Doiwit also applied it to the doctrine of the modalities, the, the modal aspects, which was very helpful. But there again, he says, they are all sovereign within their own sphere. Why is that important? Let me give, briefly give you two examples. The one is the biotic is different from the physical. As soon as you see the biotic cannot be reduced to the physical, you realize immediately that evolution is nonsense because the, the biotic can never develop from the physical because there are distinct sovereign modalities uh, of the created reality. And the other example is the pistical aspect. It was not even understood by some of the pupils of Doewit and Vollenhoven. Because they thought the pistical, that has to do with religion. Religion as opposed to economy and aesthetics and all those other things. So how can the pistol, pistical be a separate uh, aspect, the faith aspect? That's a basic misunderstanding. I told you, religion in the limited sense, we have two different words for that in Dutch, it's difficult in English, but uh, in a limited sense, religion has to do with what we call religious activities, namely praying, singing, preaching, etc. But in a wider sense, everything is religious that we do, because we either do things in obedience to God, as led by the Spirit, or in disobedience to God, uh, as being led by the flesh. So, the physical aspect is one aspect out of many, but all those aspects are religious in the sense that they are either turned to God, especially for the last uh, nine that have to do with uh, cultural and spiritual life, 
as contrasted with uh, the natural aspect. Well, these are a few things that I would like to say about... Uh, so let's have a few questions from the students about sphere sovereignty. There's much more that we could say. Sorry, uh, Lauren. Uh, it doesn't work like this. It's not fit for me. I might never come back. I have no PowerPoint presentations. Um, so uh, if what you're saying is the primary responsibility of the state or the only actual responsibility of the state is public justice, um, then what then... See, I would take that to conclude that then in the state's relationship with other states, the state becomes primarily self-motivated. Oh. So what, what would your response be to that? Yeah, that's a very different subject, of course, well, how states relate to each other. And, um, then we have to say that each has its own responsibility, just like different families have nothing to do with each other. They might be befriended or not, but they all have their own, they all have their own responsibility within their own circle, within their own sphere, and not with respect to others. So this is the way that states should relate to each other. But the tendency in history, of course, has always been that bigger states try to uh, supersede smaller states, and uh, that's how empires arise. Now, that is an abuse of power. And abuse also of the sovereignty of all the various states. Does it answer your question? More or less, yes, because I always want to know that, otherwise I'm talking in the air. Okay, Stephanie. Um, so in this model, each sphere has limited autonomy. Um, I'm wondering, though, about church and church discipline. So... What is the role of the church when its members are not living faithfully in their lives in realms outside of activities in the church? Like what? Um, if, let's say, uh, a husband and wife attend a church, uh, the husband is being unfaithful, that's in the realm of the family, but how does the church okay. get involved with church discipline that's in that situation? Right. That is a good question. It's not so easy to draw an exact line because just like the state should not interfere with family life the church should not do that either i first give the negative answer so the church doesn't tell me how many children i should have uh, although in earlier days the roman catholic pastor would go to people that have five children and now three years nothing has happened and he might go there and ask why there's not a sixth child coming you know um, but we don't believe in that. That's the responsibility of the marriage and of the, uh, of the family. But there is a correspondence with this idea of public justice. Because there is a limit where you can go over and then you come to these people. And that is a difficult moment because often Christians say, this is none of your business. For instance, they say, well, we had an abortion. And we have very good reasons for that. And that's our private reason. You have nothing to do with that. That's always a tense situation, because now the elders will say, oh, wait a second, we do have something to do with that, because we think that you did something that went against the commandments of the Lord. If they can show that very clearly, then the person would have only two options, leave that church or be disciplined. But there the elders are on shaky ground to find, just like the state, to find 
the boundary line between where should we intervene, where should we meddle and tell them what to do, and where should we leave it to the individual responsibility of the people. And you see, now you get more and more people that are living together before they are married, and they say, well, that's none of your business. That's our decision before the Lord. I don't agree. And the elders really need a lot of courage to show them we don't agree. And we think we have biblical grounds for that. And the difficulty today is that we have so many denominations. So people that do not agree with what the elders tell them, they can easily go to the church around the corner where they are more liberal of these things and they would allow that, etc. So that's really difficult. Here are two young Christians, or older Christians. They're both gay. But as far as we can assess, they really love the Lord. They would like to walk in His commandments, except for this thing, they're living together. This is a major problem now in certain churches because some people would say this is not our business to meddle, to interfere with their personal responsibility. And others are saying, uh, no, this is our responsibility. For instance, we are now this crisis in the, the, the churches that here would correspond with the free reformed churches. Is there a major issue? What belongs? So you might say we don't agree with your doing. But it goes beyond our responsibility as church elders to do something about it. You see, this is a big difference. We might disagree. I'm, I, you might disagree with, with everybody in your church because you, th you hold different views on I don't know what. But if you would say, uh, I think that uh, Jesus was a sinner like us, but God helped him that, so that he never sinned. Well, is this your personal responsibility or are I going to talk with you about that? Because if we would not allow that, where is the borderline? Otherwise, we might end up with a lot of sects about all different views. The other option is that we become liberal and that anything can be said and everything can be asserted. This is one of the big problems. In, older, in earlier ages, where responsibility of the people, well, let me say of the elders, was far more natural, where authority was automatically accepted. It was much easier. The people did as the elders told them. Today they say, wait, hey, wait a moment. That's individualism. I have my own opinion. And it's not easy to draw the lines there because otherwise you get a church division or you land in liberalism because anything can be done. Authority is a difficult matter. Let me uh, say this, Kenan. To show you how authority worked in the 19th century in Holland, we had a man who had just died, and the doctor came, and the wife was there sobbing at the table, and the doctor was writing the death declaration. And suddenly, the man sat upright, and he said, I'm still here! And the wife says, now who would know better? You're the doctor! <laughs> this is authority. That doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> okay. Is there anyone who doesn't understand the joke? Oh, sorry, uh, Kenan. Three? Can I handle that, uh, Susie? Can you comment on how uh, what you just mentioned fits into church discipline? So, like, there's two kingdom or two keys to the kingdom or two. Say, uh, louder. I'm just a poor foreigner. One I have second, to speak yeah, loud and clearly so that so I know there's two keys to the kingdom of heaven, church right. or preaching and church discipline. So how does the church 
administrate church discipline with that view? That is, well, that's basically the question I was just raising. That is very difficult, and the opinions might differ on that. Let me very say very clearly. Somebody would say, let me say that as a thumb rule. Somebody would say anything against the Apostles' Creed, not because it's in the Apostles' Creed, but because we think this is a fair statement of orthodox beliefs. If you would say, well, I believe Jesus was a very important person, a wisdom teacher as the world has ever seen, but I don't think that he was God that came into the flesh. I would say to my elders, either you put him under discipline or I leave this church. I couldn't live with that. That's a clear case. But when they interfere with people's personal lives, when they begin to ask for the tax, tax declarations, for instance, of all the individual members, just to find out whether they're all fair and honest, etc., that is a very hard question. And we have churches now dividing over these matters because some think we should, some think we should go further than that, or others, no, we should not interfere with people's individual responsibility. So I don't have a clear-cut answer when it is a question of false doctrine, heretic, heretical doctrines, not just doctrines that I might differ upon, you know. I'm happy to live in a church where if A, pre, and post-middle living together in peace, that would be fine. We would know the other would be wrong, but you know we can live with them. But if they would say, no, we only would like to accept pre-mill people, and I say, well, I'm pre-mill myself, but I want, don't want to be here. This is a sect, a pre-mill sect. So, but that is easier than when it comes to personal life. We have 1 Corinthians 5, where Paul says we should not even eat with rubbers and adulterers, etc. But these are clear-cut cases that everybody hopefully will agree upon. But there are lots of things that have to do with personal responsibility that we should be difficult, that will be difficult to draw a borderline. Um, you nicely gave a kind of like the kernel of the meaning of the state uh, as uh, maintaining public justice. Can you give a kernel for all the other eight spheres? So uh, just, yeah. Like public justice, you know, it say it in one word? Yeah. Well, Doyred would say the family is based on the biotic aspect because procreation is the basic, the foundation, but it's governed by the love aspect. The love between the parents and uh, the children. Same for marriage. He would say the state is a juridical, judicial institution characterized by the uh, juridical aspect because justice is a, it's not a morality institution. It's a judicial institution, has to do with public justice. The church would be governed, of course, by the episcopal aspect. And lots of associations would be uh, governed by the various aspects. Uh, so the modality uh, doctrine here comes in very neatly. It helps us for each one of them to say what is the foundation of it, like the biotic foundation in the case of the family and the marriage, and what is the qualifying principle that will be uh, love. But in the state, love certainly is not what we might have a love for our own country, and that is very natural, but it's not the qualifying aspect. The qualifying aspect is the judicial one. Uh, for companies and schools, they, uh, that depends, of course. Schools as especially a social, social meaning. Sometimes I think that Doyle missed their kind of 
modal aspect that still might be added, but usually you would say this is a social thing because the children are our common responsibility. Because that is an interesting question, of course. Why have schools? Why do the parents not do that themselves? And even if they do homeschooling, then the materials that they have are handed to them by others, you know? So uh, schools, we have schools because we think it's our common responsibility to train our youth as well as we can, because that will be to the benefit of all of us, to the whole society. So there the social aspect will be very important, like the economical aspect in the case of the company. Yes, what is the qualifying aspect of a political party? Now this is the test. This is the test. What is the qualifying aspect of a political party? Say, say that. No, I, I want to hear one of those 15 aspects. Yes, that is not too bad. At any rate, not the same as the state. It's not a judicial thing. Because the people in a political party are bound together by an ideology. And ideology, would, you know, and the ethical would be very good. As long as you don't say pistical, as long as you don't say social, as long as you don't say judicial. So the state is not governed by an ideology. But a political party is, whatever that ideology might be, socialist or Christian or Marxist or liberalism, etc., etc. Yeah, that's interesting. So there, you know, this whole doctrine of the modalities, as it has been explained by Joe, is a model. It's not biblical truth. You cannot be disciplined if you don't believe this whole story. But models are there to help us to distinguish what should be distinguished. They help us to get a survey of the state of affairs and reality. So in that sense, we try to teach you those modalities simply to use them as, as an, an aid, an aid for distinguishing things that should be different. Kevin. Yeah, you brought up the example of, in the Netherlands, the state um, allowing infanticide in certain very difficult situations where, um, where the child is in severe suffering. I'm just wondering if you could clarify your stance on that a bit more or, or where the purpose of you bringing that up. Yeah. Because you seem to be kind of ambiguous around um, what you thought about that, and I'm just curious where you're going. You see, Gerrit, it's easy enough to say it's wrong. You should not be killing anyone, so we don't do that. It's false. That is true. But there's always the question of comparison of between two evils. Very often there is a choice between two evils. And I would still make the choice not to kill. But I can imagine, let me put it this way, I can imagine that people Talk, with, talk to nurses, talk to doctors who have helped those children, who have been trying to help them to give them some bearable kind of life. And sometimes it doesn't work. They fail. I think we sometimes have a moral judgment about things that we have never seen from the inside, how difficult they are. Oh, that was the last one. Thank you, thank you, thank you.